afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audio book platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is memoirist, novelist, and children's author Matt Haig, who's joining us from England to talk about his recent books, The Midnight Library and The Comfort Book. Matt, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. It is so great to be here. Thank you for having me. We'd actually scheduled an interview earlier this year that got canceled because we had an ice storm. Today, I'm only having a hurricane, so not not quite as bad. Um, and we were going to talk then about your novel, The Midnight Library. We'll chat about that a little bit later, but you've been busy since February, and you have a new book out called The Comfort Book that we're going to talk about as well. You've written a wide variety of fiction and nonfiction for children, for adults. How do you decide what comes next? <sighs> I, my my only kind of rule I set myself really is to try and write the book I want to sort of read in that moment. Um, so I, you know, I finished from Midnight Library about March 2020, and um, you know, the reason I wrote um, the comfort book at that time was because, well, the world was obviously in a stressful, depressing place. I was overdosing on news, and so I was kind of. I wanted to write something that felt like the antidote to me. That would be a calm thing to write. That would be relatively, relatively easy, and hopefully easy reading for other people as well. And um, yeah, so it, with with this latest one, you know, it would not have happened without um, the time we're in. It probably wouldn't have happened without the book that went before either. It wouldn't have happened without the Midnight Library. It's kind of like a an extension of the mm -hmm. themes within the Midnight Library as well. So it's always, yeah, it's always trying to be honest. As you as you write more and more books, and, and even though some people almost think the Midnight Library was my first book, it was actually like my 21st yeah. book. And as you as your career progresses, the heart the thing that becomes harder, some things become easier and some things become harder. One of the things that becomes harder is always is being honest with yourself about what, what you know, if you'd never written anything, if there was no expectation from a publisher or a reader about you at all, what would you write? If you were a debut writer, instead of book 21, if you were a debut writer, what, what in that moment would you um, put pen to paper or finger to keyboard? What would you actually... Um, put out there into the world? And, and that's the question I have to always ask. And obviously it's impossible to totally know because we're all swayed one way or another, but I always try as much as possible to resist um, the immediate expectation, like to, to follow a novel with a nonfiction book or, you know, to just sort of sidestep that pressure um, seems to be my pattern. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about the comfort book and, and about what led you um, I mean, you've talked a little bit about what led you toward it, but but it's a, it is, as you say, a very different sort of book, and yet there are connections to the Midnight Library too. Um, yeah, um, it's a very, uh, I mean, in terms of form, it's a very strange book, I suppose, because um, it's full of very short chapters um, around the theme of comfort or hope, 
um, based either on my own experience of recovering uh, from depression and living with anxiety and things like that, or, you know, quotations from ancient Greek philosophers. There's a recipe for hummus and a a, a, a not too serious one for peanut butter on toast. And, um, you know, it's got a little bit of humor to it. And uh, and I, even though it touches on philosophy and ancient philosophy, it, I, I really tried to have the sort of lightest of touches with this book. So I didn't want the comfort book to just be the title. I wanted it to be the feel of the book. I wanted it to feel very accessible to people. Um, with this book, I always remember myself when I was um, younger and ill you know mentally and really finding it hard to concentrate on things and i i i felt like with this you know what what would you try and how would you communicate to that person so i was almost writing to the most sort of frazzled reader the most stressed out reader to try and give the most simple chapters and lines and aphorisms not hopefully not dumbing down but trying to find the simplest way of saying things um and you know, having a little, little light touch with a little bit of humor to make it more palatable and everything. So I wouldn't write every book with that same intention, but with the comfort book, because it was called the comfort book, because it came out of the pandemic and everything, even though it's not a pandemic book in the sense, was, I was determined not to mention COVID, coronavirus by name, anything, but it, it, the feel of it definitely came out of that time. Um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. But yeah, <laughs> you read about um, the paradox of how sometimes life lessons come to us when we're at our lowest points. Um, for you, as you're writing, what do you what do you find to be the most useful emotional state to sort of get you into the creative uh, process? Uh, <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah, I was going to say something negative there, but sometimes it is frustration. It's kind of like. Um, you're either frustrated with yourself or you're frustrated because you're feeling behind or you're frustrated about something and you're wanting to solve it or fix it through your writing. Um, so sometimes it can be frustration. Sometimes it can be um, excitement because you've... I can remember when I had the idea for a Midnight Library. I'd been wanting to write about parallel lives for ages, but because it's such an overdone genre... I had been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I did. I, I said, if I get a hook, then I'll write it. If it's a sort of concept. And then, then sometimes you'll get a concept on Atlanta. I have the concept um, of, of a, a library full of lives uh, that goes on forever. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's not been done quite in that way. You know, it's a little bit of a riff of, um Borges's short story about the library of babel and infinite library but to do it about multiverse and to do it about I thought, oh yeah i've got to write that and then sometimes when when you get excited about an idea it grows i don't know if you found this but it grows in your head and um you then have this kind of pressure to get it all down before you you forget it all so that's another kind of incentive to sort of like you've got the novel in your head you're kind of reading it in your head before it's written and you, you're trying to keep up with yourself to get it all down before you forget it or uh, anything else so often i'm a little bit i swing between two poles where i'm either floundering and staring at a blank document for a long time or i go to the other unhealthy extreme where 
you know, through Saturday and Sunday, 24 seven, you're just writing to try and sort of finish something. So it's a little, you know, there's a little pendulum swing. A lot of your writing, and I, I mean, I see this certainly in the Midnight Library and in the Comfort Book, is connected in in some ways with your own struggles. You mentioned before struggles with depression and anxiety. Um, what do you see as the, as that relationship between your art and and your own suffering? Yeah, I mean, it's important not to romanticize it because you can fall into the sort of like tortured writer trope and all of that. But at the same time, you have to be sort of realistic about your own experience. Personally, when I've been very depressed, I've been entirely unproductive and haven't created anything. So depression's its own thing. And uh, I think it's important not to beat yourself up if you're not, um, if you're in a, if you're ill, you know, you can't, you can't work. If you're feeling at a certain low point, you can't work. But <laughs> having said that, I think out of the experience of depression and out of the experience of anxiety, um, there have been things that I've taken. There have been perspectives I've had that have been, have, feels a bit crude to say useful, but they have been useful um, when it comes to writing. Because, you know, depression and anxiety, they, they kind of overload you with thought. And writing can be a way to release some of that thought. And anxiety, especially. Anxiety is often a series of questions and worries and uh, imaginings. And so if you can channel that energy to a more positive place, it can actually be quite um, therapeutic. It can give you the space and energy to do things. I don't think depression itself is that useful for creativity but i'd say anxiety certainly the kind i had which sort of sped up your brain and and made you made you question everything and you know writers famously need you know it's a weird mix being a writer isn't it because you, yeah. you 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 need to be confident slash arrogant enough to actually think the world needs to hear from you and put your stuff out in the world but also be self-critical and self-doubting enough <coughs> To be able to have your own BS detector and to, you know, edit and to 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 not fall in love with your own style and you know realize actually yeah this is this is not working and to to make those sort of like I nearly said brave decisions that might be a bit hyperbolic but those tough decisions to actually say actually I'm not that good in this moment and um, I need to get rid of this or I need to chop ten thousand words here or whatever. Um, so it's, it's that balance between a kind of swaggering confidence and then this kind of uh, recoiling self-doubt. And it's a, it's a, which is why you get so many problematic writers, isn't it? <laughs> Just <laughs> problematic people. But it's an interesting uh, personality cocktail of, of confidence and its opposite. It strikes me that the, the act of creating this, this book, the comfort book, must have been somewhat of a comfort in itself in this, you know, sort of bizarre period that that you were creating in it. Um, did you find it a comforting? And also, do you envision that this might be something that your readers might do for themselves to sort of create their own comfort books? I hope so. Yeah, I, apparently I've heard from uh, two people now who, who are actually doing it themselves and uh, uh, it's given them the impetus to write down their favorite quotes and their own thoughts. Um, and that's great. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what was the first part of the question about uh, the? Well, just did you find it? 
comforting to <laughs> yeah. the process of putting this together. Yeah, I did. I, and I think part of it was because of the subject itself, because you're literally writing um, and researching um, about inspiring things and about appreciating the small things and about the way everything connects and things that are healing, um, but also the form of it itself. It was, um, it's hopefully easy reading, but it was also easy writing because it doesn't have narrative. You can pick this book up at page 79 and get the same thing out of it if you picked it up at page three. It's kind of relatively formless. It has got a kind of structure and a kind of flow, but that's a flow and a form that's, that's more about feeling than about logic. It's more, you know, this feels right here. A short chapter next to a longer chapter next to another longer chapter next to a short chapter. You know, it was more about the rhythm of it. And, you know, I'm going to sound super pretentious, but the music of it and uh, less about, um, you know, what's happening. You know, like when you're structuring a novel, certainly a novel like The Midnight Library, which was like writing 12 short novels in one and they were overlapping. That was a real tricky edit you know the first draft was fun but the editing process on that and making everything logical was really tough and, and I, i've got a very good uh, editor in london who, who really helped me with that but with the comfort book it was almost no editing because where i need editing normally is um is in structure yeah. um, and so it was so relaxing to write a page and not have to think where where I would put that. Because very often with a novel, I'd have an idea and write a paragraph and think, oh, where am I going to put that? With this, it was all that. It was all paragraphs just free floating. And um, so it was, it was, it, yeah, it was great. It, 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 I'd like to write, I mean, not necessarily on this theme, but I'd like to write another book in this format um, again. And it won't be, it definitely, I was very aware writing this, it's definitely not going to be to everyone's tastes. Um, some people will think, is this a real book? It's got, you know, you, you know, just a single aphorism on a page sometimes. But I wanted it visually to look very accessible yeah. and almost to compete with the frazzled attention spans of the information age and social media. And um, to see if, you know, a lot of it, you know, some of it, you know, life is short, be kind. That's that's a complete chapter. Obviously, some of it's very simple. Um, but to mix that in with, you know, stuff about um, Plato's ideas on perfectionism and abstract forms versus Aristotle's ideas on um, accepting the intrinsic nature of things in the natural world and how that dichotomy is still there. To, to put some, uh, some slightly more heavy-duty stuff in there, but to do it in disguise. Or oh, is, um, is that a dog? Yeah. yeah, that's a slight squeaking noise here in the background is the dog. Is okay. the dog. It's better than the barking <laughs> you may hear at any moment from our Maltese Terrier in this house. Well, this is this is a different kind of book to talk about than a, than a novel, as we already found. And one of the things um, that I liked about this book is you sort of show that almost anything you encounter in life might have a lesson for you. Um, so I'm going to just throw out three or four things that are some of my favorite things that you learned lessons from and just have you sort of tell us quickly some of the some of the thoughts okay. that you had uh so the first one is hamlet hamlet yeah um well nothing is good or bad um except uh, i'm gonna sort of say one except thinking but thinking makes it so so uh, yeah i mean that's perspective isn't it that's stoicism that's yeah. you know 
how, how, how you can look at the exact same reality and see it as amazing or absolutely terrible, depending on, on where you're standing. And um, I suppose that's the basis for cognitive behavioral therapy. So in a way, Shakespeare was inventing <laughs> modern, <laughs> modern therapeutic practices. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something I, I had to consciously work on as, as a real glass half empty kind of person. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I did that. Okay, uh, somewhere over the rainbow. Somewhere over the rainbow, you know, 1939, uh, Wizard of Oz came out in cinemas. Um, very bleak year in human history, yeah. 1939. Um, probably, possibly, if you were going to do a poll of, of such things, 1939 would be a strong contender for the worst year of the 20th century. Okay. And yet there you have this hopeful musical, this magical, fantastical musical, um, wowing cinema audiences around the world. Um, in poll after poll of best songs of the 20th century, somewhere over the rainbow is their number one um, song. It comes out, you know, time and time again as the most popular song in the history of cinema, all of this. And um, yeah, it's a song about hope. So uh, my point with that is about how hope isn't a product of happiness. Hope isn't a product of um, things being all okay. Hope is a product often, very often of darkness. It's what you sort of need in the, in the dark times. And cynicism is actually a luxury of when things are going well. So it was about connecting hope to darkness. And I love the, I, I love aspects of the song, uh, uh, you know, in its construction. Like, I don't know if it was deliberate um, when Harold and Yip first came up with the music for um, Summer of the Rainbow, but within the word somewhere it goes up a whole octave yeah. it's somewhere so it's literally going over seven natural notes like a, a musical rainbow and i i love that i love yeah. that concept yeah. as of hope being a kind of leap upwards um yeah anyway yeah uh, and then one of my favorites the house of Pooh corner yes well you know I, i've got a theory that um winnie the pooh and the whole universe of pooh um well, there's obviously been a book called The Tower of Pooh, yeah, which is yeah. great, but I, I think it's it's a kind of, um, you know, I know people are snobby about the term, but it's kind of a self-help book. It's kind of a mental health book. Uh, you, you've got the different mental states uh, represented via the characters. So you've got hyperactive Tigger, anxious Piglet, depressed ER, hopeful Pooh. You've got all, all these different... Um, mental states and you could argue christopher robin is hallucinating the yeah. whole experience so in in a meta big level it's kind of a, a mental health experience but um yeah I, I watched a film recently it wasn't the best film in the world but I, I can't remember what the film was about aa mill was it christopher oh robin? yeah yeah um I yeah but that was interesting how how it related his mental experiences and ptsd and his shell shock yeah, from yeah. World War One to to the creation of it and and it kind of made sense to me that that origin story for it. Anyway. Well, I want to switch gears for a few minutes now and, and talk about the Midnight Library. And you you just mentioned <laughs> hope a minute ago, and then the comfort book you you spent a lot of time writing about hope. Do you do you see the Midnight Library as a novel about hope? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd probably, myself, if I was talking about it, I, I'd use the word acceptance or self-acceptance, overcoming regrets, mm-hmm. those things. Sort of being, taking a closer look at where you are rather than always, you know, thinking the grass is greener and wishing for something else. I think it's a part of our condition nowadays to imagine better lives, not just the better lives we see on social media, people um, having who are better off than us in any kind of ways, but also, um, you know, we imagine hypothetical versions of ourselves. I certainly do. And I think the internet age encourages that and marketing encourages that. And we're always being sold um something that will make us a better person so in the process we are in our current state being made to feel a bit inadequate or a bit you know a bit ashamed and and we've got to do something normally pay for something to improve that so the midnight library was a kind of rebellion pushback against that it was about actually you know this present situation can look terrible in front of us but it is actually a trick of perspective and what we might imagine is a better life for us might not be so there was those sort of frank capra it's a wonderful life themes in there but um also a sort of social media age feeling of that age of comparison we're in where we're comparing ourselves to other lives and it would be like the best course of therapy ever i think to be able to to literally yeah. head into a, a midnight library and um, see, you know, see how things would have been if, you know, if we'd have um, been a movie star or whatever it was. Uh, and um, yeah, I think it would it probably do us more good than harm to, to see that sometimes. But anyway. So the book, as the title implies, the book is, is about a library, this library that has all the possible lives of, of the yeah. main character. And it also begins in a library. Um, so I'm guessing that, like me, you might be a fan of libraries. Do you have a Do you have a favorite library or library experience? Yeah, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of England um, called Newark on Trent, mm-hmm. the original Newark. Before, <laughs> I think America's got. I mean, obviously you've got New Jersey Newark, but you've got about 13 Newarks in America. Yeah. There's a Newark in California. I know that. But anyway, um, I uh, yeah, I did. I grew up in this small town, and Newark on Trent you may not have heard of because it doesn't have much going for it. It, it. Culturally, it was a bit of a wasteland. We didn't have a cinema in the 1980s. We had a very, very small mediocre theater, which didn't really have much on. Um, we didn't have a bookstore. What we had, we had a video store and we had a library. And the library was right in the center of town. And it wasn't an oldie woldy typical English Victorian looking library. It was quite a modern greenhouse, kind of all glass conservatory, very light space. And I used to go there after school and just sit there and hang out. And um, my parents both worked and we worked quite late. So I'd go sit there, do my homework, stare out of the window, um, stare at any girls walking past. Um, I would peruse you know, Stephen King, James Herbert, horror novels. I was into S.E. Hinton, you know, The Outsiders and yep. Buffish. And I, I discovered all those things in that library. And I think it's not just about the books, though. I think libraries are, are slightly more 
than places for books. So I think libraries are kind of like safe spaces for stop. They're spaces that like us as human beings more than they like us as consumers. I, I know, you know, libraries occasionally ask us for money for things. And if we're late with our books, they, they, they want to, us to pay a fee. But generally speaking, libraries aren't there. You know, we're not consumers when we're in a library. We're not in that sort of capitalist sense of being a consumer. We're actually um, there as a human being, either to learn something, to research something, to read something for pleasure, to get a book out for someone. Uh, and um, there's not many spaces like that. You know, it's almost like it's a secular church, a library. Yeah. It's a sort of sacred space that exists in town centres. That's not our house, but it doesn't just primarily want us to spend our money and, um, yeah, to be valued. And actually, what was, you know, I know America has, you know, a lot of cuts to services and stuff like that, but I have to say America um values libraries far more i i think from an outsider's perspective than in the uk where we are you know cutting libraries left right and center so i'm always impressed at how much libraries are still very much at the center of the book world in america you have the library journal you have library conferences and librarian conferences and stuff and we don't have any equivalent of that in the uk so uh, i'm always i'm always um impressed when i go to the states um to see that so you have a character, Mrs. Elm, who sort of in some ways sums up what goes on in this book by saying there are many different possible lives ahead of you. Um, and that's true, obviously, for all of us in any moment, we can make a decision. As we get older, maybe there's not quite as many possibilities as, as we close doors. But um, I'm wondering if you see that also as sort of a metaphor for, for writing novels. We start with these blank pages that can be anything, and the more pages we fill up, the fewer possibilities there are as we go. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. And that's true. I mean, um, there's a nice diagram I've seen on the internet about possibility, about sort of like it's, it's got all the different branches of a tree uh, um, illustrated in grey to show all the sort of possibilities we haven't been able to take. And then there's another green tree in front with all the different branches. And I think actually in any one moment, um yes in some ways the range gets narrower but there's still infinite possibilities within that range you know there's infinite uncertainty by being human so obviously from where we're born in a, in a way you know from our, our upbringing our parents there are things we haven't been able to choose there are things there are certain options we haven't had you know we don't um we can't magically change who we are you know in terms of the core identity of us uh, and stuff like that so i suppose there's always a slight curtailing on who we are but within that um i like to think at whatever age i've been there's always um an infinite array of possibilities even if it's even if they're possibilities that are presented because of the road you've traveled to that point i feel like um it may i think what happens um I suppose, I can always remember actually, uh, who was the writer? Charles Bukowski. Uh, towards the end of his life, he was interviewed and there's a, a clip up on YouTube about um, the challenges of getting older. And he said, the, the, the hard thing is um, not repeating yourself. You know, you get into patterns. So I think as you get older, it gets harder to break those patterns. And when you're writing a novel, um, it 
not within the novel, but as a novelist, as your career goes on, it gets harder to sort of break out of those patterns, but it's still always possible. And even with novels, it's always possible to surprise yourself. Um, sometimes people say, oh, you know, they like the Midnight Library, but they thought the ending was a bit predictable, which I find funny because actually up until about the second to last edit, it had a different ending. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so it had a much more sort of romantic ending, um, a love story ending. And I, I decided against that. And yeah, so 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 even with, within the scope of an ending, you know, there's always there's always possibility and different forking paths in front of us. We, I mean, one of the things this novel, of course, makes us all think about is those moments in our past that we we look back and we wonder what would have happened if I had taken this path instead of that path. Uh, and we all have those moments. Do, do you have particular moments in your past that, that you sort of had in mind as you were as you were structuring the different possible paths for, for Nora? Yeah, well, obviously, I drew a lot on my own experience of illness and my 20s and the breakdown and stuff. Um, some of the paths were just wish fulfillment really i mean i i can i did piano lessons up until i was a teenager and i was quite good at it as a young child and then i suddenly became a self-conscious um teenage boy who didn't think it was cool to go to mrs peter's on a friday night to have piano lessons and um i yeah i you know loitered around and smoked cigarettes uh, as a more productive thing to do than learn a musical instrument and i regret i i i, I love to sort of visit the timeline where i kept going with piano and became like a musical person and last year during lockdown i i, I tried to relearn but i was relearning side by side with my 12 year old son and it's uh, kind of depressing doing that because their <laughs> brains absorbing everything and um so an hour of their time versus an hour of your time, there's no comparison, you know, you, they, they, they can progress so much quicker. So yeah, like there was a few of the lives in the Midnight Library where that was me having my own little therapy session of saying, well, even if you'd have done all those amazing things, you know, if, if for some in that universe where you're an Olympic medalist or you're Elton John or something, that would have come with its own problems. There's no, there's no easy path. You know, if, if you're alive as a human being on earth, as a sentient being, sentient mortal being, there's no easy path. There may, the ratios might change between difficulty and easiness and happiness and suffering, but every life contains the same elements. You know, if there's no, if, if you won, I don't know, won a, a reality show and you won um, uh, America's Got Talent and you were given your residency in Las Vegas or something, then, you know, you, you wouldn't be discovering new emotions. Yeah. You, you, you know, the, the emotions you'd be feeling, you had felt before. You, the ratio of those emotions might change. It might worsen or it might get better. But, you know, you wouldn't... And I feel like we, we, we place so much value on material things, external things. And we don't actually see the sameness of things. And actually, what can be dangerous, I think, and what I touched on a bit in the Midnight Library, is the idea that salvation can be found in some by getting some kind of success um because that's actually you know 
it's okay when you haven't got it and you're striving towards it because then you've got that forward momentum. But then you actually get the thing and you realize you're not saved and you've still got the same brain and you've still got the same thoughts. And then what do I do now? Because I thought the problem was because I lacked something. Then I got the thing and I had the same problem. So I have to sort of look inward and sort of, then you sort of have a breakdown and, and, um, fall apart. So part of it was kind of like a warning off of that sort of way of um, thinking, I suppose. And um, I think it hit the right time as well. Obviously, I didn't know about COVID when I was writing this in 2018, 2019. But I think it chimed with um, the thoughts people were having, that feeling of being stuck and um wanting to find some sort of acceptance over uncertainty so i think um yeah i wouldn't say any of us were lucky to have gone through that year but i do think there was something about the timing of the midnight library that um was chimed with people so i love the fact that nora's cat is named voltaire because in my head as she's going through all these volumes in the midnight library i'm like please find the best of all possible worlds, you know. Um, what role did philosophy play for you in, in the creation of this novel? Um, yeah, quite a big one. I was getting um, quite philosophical. Um, and I thought, you know, it, it was probably a little bit too easy of me to make Nora uh, a student of philosophy, which I did, which therefore gave me a green light to be able to drop quotations and ideas and references to Bertrand Russell or Thoreau or here and there and so it was a little bit it was a little bit of an easy device to to do that but um yeah I, I love it I mean I'm a great believer basically that you can ha you can or at least can strive to create a book that is entertaining accessible hopefully a page turner but also has a bit of philosophy in there, has a bit of thought in there. Most things, you don't need to swing between one and the other. You can in, ingrain it in the plot. What excited me when I first got the idea for the Midnight Library is I thought, well, the concept of the Midnight Library, that is the plot, but it's also the theme. So it's the plot and the theme and the character, because the Midnight Library came from Nora's mind in a way. Um, all of it were related around the concept of the Midnight Library. So I liked the tidiness that I could weave a philosophy and some science in terms of multiverse theory into this singular concept. I didn't have to sort of branch off into a million directions to use an appropriate metaphor. I could actually um, keep it all contained within the concept of the Midnight Library. Yep, yep. One of the other philosophers that Nora muses about is, is Thomas Hobbes, and she talks about how he viewed memory and imagination as pretty much the same thing, I think is the words that she uses. What do you see as a relationship between memory and imagination for a novelist? I mean, you've written novels, you've written memoirs, you've, you've written from your memory and from your imagination. Yeah. How yeah, does yeah. it connect for you? It's very interesting. I, I, I actually find it more freeing to, 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 uh, to put more of myself and more of my memory into a novel sometimes. I mean, I wrote a very, uh, very autobiographical book, a non-fiction book called Reasons to Stay Alive, where I was literally talking about my own experience of mental illness. And yet I felt when I was writing that very um, curbed in terms of what I could say. It wasn't that I was saying anything that wasn't true, but it was more like there were things that were true that I couldn't say. 
And I couldn't say them because it would affect people in the real world. You know, I was writing about my parents, I was writing about my sister, I was writing about my partner. With a novel, obviously you can um, have a green card. And I think what, you know, one question I get asked a lot is why did I make the female, the protagonist female in the Midnight Library? And one answer was I, I needed the central character to be clearly not me. Yeah. You know, when I started writing um, the book, the first draft, I was starting writing um, a male character and I just couldn't see the character. And for me, a warning sign is when I keep changing the name of the character. Mm, yeah. You know, it was an Adam, it was a Simon, who just flitting about all these generic names. And I had no grasp. And I think the reason was, it was, it was to me. It was too, I was writing a version of myself. So I wasn't really writing a character. I was writing, writing something almost, you know, too close to me to see. It was like, you know, when you're standing with your nose against a painting or a mirror and you can't see what's in front of you. So by changing the age and gender and name of this character, I could then take a step back and actually see that person as a character and put more of my memory, put more of my experience. Certainly in the first um, fifth of the novel where she's um, depressed and... Um, yeah, I I put a lot I put a lot of my own experience into that and my own feeling, not necessarily literally in terms of biographical details or place details. I never lived in Bedford. I mean, Bedford was just a reference. I mean, there is an English town called Bedford near London, um, but it was more a reference to Bedford Falls and It's a Wonderful yeah. Life, and it's a way to echo that. But in terms of that feeling of wandering around small towns and feeling despair and like you're sort of trapped that, you know, that's a lot of autobiographical stuff. I used to, I used to um, work in a town called Croydon near London, which is a bit like Bedford. I can remember sort of walking around feeling depressed under the heavy gray skies, not wanting to go back in after lunch to do my telesales job. And, you know, a lot of that was put into that early section. The first book that Nora looks at um, in the Midnight Library is called The Book of Regrets. Um, what role do you think regret plays in most people's lives versus what role ought it to play in our lives? I think it depends on the person. I mean, I have met people who say they don't feel regret at all, and that's great. But I think, I think most people at some point experience um, regrets with the passing of time we feel like missed opportunities i think as you get older it's easier to have regrets because you can regret you know i don't know how you were in a relationship how you were as a parent how you were as a friend um whether or not you decided to have kids or what whatever there can be a million things where you can torment yourself and think oh if i wonder what if i had have done that differently or if I'd have gone for that job interview or if I'd have moved to New York or if I'd have done this or if I'd have done that. And, um, you know, all, all that time you're spent um, regretting is time you're not actually living or at least not living in the moment because you're literally reminiscing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, the Midnight Library is my big anti-regret um, work. And... Um, it's, you know, regret has definitely been a part of my life. Um, not because I've done anything majorly, majorly wrong, more beyond the, the normal person, but certainly when I was ill, 
um, I really regretted how I'd got into the position where I was suicidal. And that was related to health. That was related to um, how and where and why, you know, what, what, how I've been living. And it took me a long time to get over that regret, you know, the regret of having my 20s swallowed up with illness and um, being um a bad boyfriend not, not an abusive boyfriend but a bad boyfriend during that time because um i'd gone from one extreme of this person who wanted to go out all the time to someone who couldn't like leave a house on my own so i had separation anxiety so andrea who was absolutely amazing and and, and, and brilliant to me during that time i've often felt guilt and regret that she you know i didn't have my 20s because i was ill she didn't have the 20s some of them because she was a carer you know, she was sort of looking after me. So I have all kinds of issues about that and, and all of that stuff. But the thing is, it doesn't make you, regret doesn't make you a better person. You, yes, you have to learn from your mistakes and stuff, but dwelling and, you know, it, it doesn't, you, you, you haven't got a time machine. You haven't got a DeLorean to be able to go back and um, fix it. So, yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insights into you and into your writing. Uh, and if I can find the right page, we will begin. Here we go. Uh, what word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, okay. Um, home. I love the word home. Home's great. I love, I love finishing a sentence with home or even a chapter. You know, home is a, is, a, is a beautiful word to end. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Serendipity. Where's your favorite place to write? Sofa. <laughs> Where could you <laughs> never write? Um, actually, I, I can never write in a writer's room. Like, I, like I, I bought this house we bought this house in brighton in england and it's got a shed and i wanted to be like roald dahl and, and retreat yeah. to my writer's shed and um as soon as i sit down and it's in a work environment and this is a writer's place i don't work. i have to almost write in a way where it doesn't feel like work so that tends to be on the sofa with my feet up and in the living room which isn't always the healthiest place but it <laughs> it's it's the way it is <laughs> so what rule of grammar do you pay least attention uh i split infinitives quite a lot what was the first book you remember reading um a book by the english author enid blyton called yeah. noddy goes to market uh -huh. uh, what are you reading now i i'm gonna sound very highbrow and impressive i'm reading <laughs> um seneca on the shortness of life the, you know the old roman stoic yeah. philosopher on the shortness of life, which uh, is, is actually, the translation is very accessible and it's a short book. That's my favorite book, short books. What book would you like to have written? Um, well, I wouldn't have wanted to be him, but the book I'm most impressed by is um, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, which um, contains such sort of wisdom and, um, beautiful advice on life, love, sexuality, hope, writing, all kinds of things. Um, so I'll say, I'll say that. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? 
<sighs> detective story. I would love to find my magic detective. I, I could just keep on writing in book after <laughs> book. And I have tried. I would genuinely, if I got one, I would go for it. But I, I just don't think I'm that type of writer. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, I think the nicest thing you, but I, I, you know, I, I'll sound a bit of a show, but I, when I have heard readers say this, it's the most lovely thing when they feel like they've been understood. You know, if you can make someone feel a bit less alone and understood, I think that's one of the great um, purposes of writing. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Matt Haig, whose books The Midnight Library and The Comfort Book are available wherever books are sold. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Charlie. That was wonderful. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Sherry Lapina about her new novel, Not a Happy Family. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 